Thank you for listening to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight cool people of many different backgrounds who all happen to be dads. I'm blown away that in the first six episodes, we already have listeners from Pasadena to Albany and Birmingham to Copenhagen. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend and or rate the show in your podcasting app. Don't forget to subscribe so new episodes hit your queue automatically. Now let's talk about LP. Larry's a former leader of mine. Up until he retired about nine months ago, he was the head of public sector sales at Cisco, a multi-billion dollar business. He's also a good dude. I found him to be surprisingly humble and a leader that you could tell genuinely loves his people. We talk about having old school parents, being the last person to hear about your own promotion, successfully raising a strong family while reaching significant professional achievements, and why people should not simply follow their passion when it comes to their career field. Enjoy. Larry, thanks for joining me today. Sean, thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to it. Man, I'm so excited to have you here. How's how's retirement been treating you? You've been you've been retired for coming up on a year, right? Yeah, I uh, I retired at the end of September last year. So what are we at? About nine months, and uh, I'm loving it. I tell you, people say you you're either going to go stir crazy or you're going to love it. So far, I'm I'm in the love it category. Good. What uh, what's it looked like so far? Well, you know, with COVID, it's just been crazy. Like everyone, um, you know, I thank goodness the uh, the golf course is still open because I'm uh, I'm spending a lot of time on the golf course, uh, spending a lot of time with with family, which was one of the goals. Um, you know, exercising a little bit, trying to get back in shape, and other than that, just uh, taking care of my little puppy that we just got and having a good time. Oh, cool! What what breed is the new puppy? She's a little rescue. Um, I guess she's kind of a mix, but uh, kind of a smallish dog. She's got a lot of Pomeranian, a lot of, uh, uh, I think, Chihuahua is what they told us, and then Golden Retriever. So talk about a strange mix, but uh, Interesting. great personality. Cool. Yeah, that, you can see that one going a couple ways, but that's, uh, <laughs> that'll be cool to see. You have to let me know. I'm, I'm trying to, still working on selling my wife on getting a dog, so hopefully that's in the mix soon. Um so again, thank you for being here. Super excited to hear all about your story. So um, let's let's kick it off with uh, what was little Larry like? Where'd you grow up? What were you into? Uh, what type of kid were you? Hob- you know, hobbies as a kid, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess it all started on a dark and stormy night in Memphis, Tennessee. I uh, <laughs> I was born in Memphis. Uh, Mom and dad are both from that area. Uh, I have two brothers and two sisters. So five kids in the family. So very, very active family. Um, Dad worked for Procter & Gamble when I was young. And so he was relocated a lot um, until about, I guess I was about five. And he asked Procter & Gamble to, uh, to transfer him to a small town called Cape Girardeau, Missouri. It's about 35,000 people. And it's about two hours north of Memphis, so you know that perfect distance where you can you can see your your um, your family, but but they can't come see you on on a whim, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so, uh, grew up in a small town, um, great place to grow up, not a lot to do once you do grow up. Um, and my activities, I, I gotta be honest, Sean, I was, I was all sports all the time. I mean, I played football, basketball, baseball year round. Uh, I was that kid who never went home from uh, school because I went to practice. And that was that was what I did. Um, and, you know, it was a great way to grow up. Um, but I certainly, uh, you know, I was the good, I was, I was skinny, um, but the good news is I wasn't very fast. So, you know, my, uh, my sport <laughs> career ended after high school. <laughs> hey, that's, that's, um, you can't complain too bad. Mine, I didn't, mine never really got started much. I mean, I was on, the, <laughs> I was only on the soccer team because they needed bodies and, um, <laughs> no, you know, i I made that cut, but, um, I mean, just playing high school ball is fun though. Did you, uh. Imagine that was an enjoyable experience for you. Oh, you know, great experience, uh, great development. Um, you know, my parents were the, the old school, right? I'm probably older than a lot of people in your audience, um, but you know, different generation, and you know, they believed in in work ethic. Uh, you know, they taught right from wrong, pretty strict, but also um, you know, very fair. So, you know, any any issue I have, I certainly can't blame on on my parents. Uh, all my siblings and I have college degrees. We've all had good careers. We've all got, uh, you know, spouses and kids, and even our kids have all gone to college. Uh, I think one's still in high school, but everyone else has either graduated or in college from uh, my siblings' kids. So my parents, I think, uh, you know, they did a fantastic job. And just again, for a little context, my mother, I was the fourth child. My dad was 25 when I was born and my mother was 22. Could you imagine having four kids under the age of four when you're 22 years old? Wow. That, that's a lot. <laughs> that's the response I expected. <laughs> so, um, you sounds like you had awesome parents. Can you, um, tell us a little about your, your, uh, father? What, what kind yeah. of dad was he? What, what did he tend to do well? Yeah, so, you know, dad was, uh, uh, you know, he's still alive. He's 82 years old. And believe it or not, he just sold his company two years ago. He worked till he was 80. Um, wow. He, uh, he was active in the community. He coached baseball. Uh, for me, he was, uh, you know, working full time, raising five kids. So, you know, he was uh, strict, don't get me wrong, um, but he also really put the time in. And, you know, what I really learned from him was work ethic, uh, all that. And, you know, he's still Saturday morning, he'd get up bright and early and go wash the car. Uh, you know, he'd drag us out of bed to go and do the yard. Um, just he taught us that you don't sit still. And, and my wife jokes that, you know, I still can't sit still. Um, and he doesn't either. He's 82. And I called him a couple of days ago and he was out on the riding lawnmower mowing the yard. Um, so I think I think he taught, you know, work ethic and he did it by living it. Right. He was just a great example of you don't sit around. You you have to you have to work hard and you have to get things done. That's awesome. Just imagine how much that, you know, where your career would be if you hadn't had someone modeling good work ethic. That's really cool. That, um that you had that kind of example right there. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, uh, yeah, he was certainly a huge influence on me and my siblings, no doubt. And as was my mother, my mother was, uh, kind of similar, right? She was five kids. You don't sit still. Um, but she was a fantastic mother as well. 
So tell me, uh, what did you study in college, and what were the early years of your career like? Yeah, so again, uh, funny story talking about that. He, uh, uh, I was standing on the front porch talking to him, and I said, well, Dad, I think you know, I had a couple of offers to play uh, football at small schools. And uh, I go, Dad, I think I'm going to play football and go to one of the small schools. And he said, son, I got to tell you something. You're not going to some party school and playing ball. He said, those days are over. You're going to a good school and you're getting a good degree. And then he said, I'll never forget it. He said, and oh, by the way, you got five kids. I can't afford to pay for all y'all to go to college. So I'm not paying for any of you. You're on your own, but you're going to a good school and you're getting a good degree. <laughs> I was like, okay, I, uh, uh, I guess I got to figure out what this means. Uh, and so I went to my older brother and he said, yeah, dad had that talk with me too. Uh, my older brother was two years older. He said, um, uh, let me tell you what that means. That means you can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. That's the only thing dad's going to let you go and study at school. I'm like, okay, all right. And he goes, let me give you a little advice. You want to be a doctor, you're going to be in school for 10 years. If you want to be a lawyer, and our other brother, uh, older brother, was uh, uh, he was studying to be a lawyer, uh, you're going to be in school for six years. I'm studying engineering because you can get out in four or five years. And I said, hmm sold i'll go be an engineer <laughs> so i went to school i got a degree in engineering um and when i got out of school i went to work for a company called contel which was a big phone company they got bought by gte which subsequently has been bought by verizon but a relatively large telephone company as an engineer uh, was fortunate enough to be uh, in one of those programs where they bounce you around uh, and i ended up I did a stint in Indiana um, and then St. Louis and then Atlanta um, for them. And my last role was with their data networking group, which was a really new group um, because data networking back then was a different, it wasn't IP networking, Sean. It was, right. you know, it was, it was multiplexers and IBM data um, and controllers. Uh, but anyway, it was, it was the early days of data communication. So I got that. Um, you know, as I, as I started to look, I realized that, you know, I had the, I'd always been told I had the personality for sales, but I had an engineering degree and I kept seeing these sales guys come in to sell us stuff and they, uh, you know, they were driving the nice Mercedes. They were, you know, not working too hard. And I said, Hmm, maybe I should look at sales. So I left Contel and went to work for a manufacturer, um, who was selling to us as an engineer and two years later moved into sales. So that was kind of my path into sales from engineering early in my career. Um, and then at that point, I, um, uh, I saw what was going on in the industry, right? It was moving to IP networking and Ethernet was taking off. Uh, and so I went to work for a startup in that market that was acquired by Cisco. And you know, 24 years later, I'm still, I was still at Cisco and retired in September. So that's kind of the, uh, the early career path, if you will. Wow. So that's brought in through an acquisition. I didn't realize that. That's cool. Yeah. What was, um, so before I, um, I want to come back to coming in through the acquisition, but I do want to ask, uh, before we get too far from it, what was, what's your take now as a, um, older, wiser man looking back at you when your dad had that conversation of, hey, I don't have enough money for all of you, so I'm not going to give any of you. Um, what are your thoughts on that, knowing ahead of time you weren't going to get any money? Um, yeah. You know, 
I, uh, I think it was one of those defining moments, Sean. It was one of those that said, you're, you're growing, you're grown up now, right? You're on your own. Uh, was yeah. basically that conversation. Um, you know, and I was a 17, 18 year old kid. Um, I, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I paid for my school. I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, I really was on my own as soon as I got out of uh, high school and went off to college. Now the parents were always there if something happened, but you know, I was responsible for me. And I think that was, like I said, a defining moment. And, you know, it's funny. I had that conversation with my wife early on. I said, I, I think our kids need to pay for their own college because, you know, it's, it's good for them. It teaches them work ethic. They take responsibility for themselves and, no, no, no. We're not. We're not letting them go into debt. It's a different time, right? College is much more expensive. Um, but I do think it was. It was really positive. And as scary as it was when I when I heard those words, um, it was right. And I think that's another lesson that uh, he taught us: is your children you need to set higher expectations, right? I see too many parents who want their kids to be happy and. All that's great, but at some point we do have to set expectations for them that you know they're going to go to college, they're going to take care of themselves, they're going to be productive uh, members of society, um, and and he did that very clearly. That's awesome. I find myself in the same uh, camp as you. When my uh, I was a I think a young teenager and my parents are like, look, if you want to go to college, you got to get a scholarship because we don't have any money. <laughs> and, and I was, um, I was just like, okay, you know, I knew we didn't have any money. So I hadn't really, wasn't even thinking about college yet, but I, that dramatically changed my motivation and ownership of my, um, you know, report cards every, every, uh, quarter or whatever. I was like, all right, I, I probably, I need to get some grades and, and I took ownership. And, and so when I see people now, it's like, everyone's like, Oh, you gotta save for kind of like, you need millions of dollars in the bank for the kids to go. I'm like, shoot, man, cut them loose. Let them go. Like, let them get, you know, I, I think I, I benefited from it. I thought it was a net positive. So, um, I don't know. People think I'm like inhumane when I say, no, I'm probably not going <laughs> to take care of my kids, but I'm glad, you know, it worked out great for you. So I, I think it's something to think about. Yeah. I, I, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't pay for their college, but I am saying to set high expectations and make sure they understand that, you know, there is a point in time when, you know, they need to take responsibility for their own, their own, their own well-being. Yeah. 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 So, and thank you for coming, going back with me on that. Um, so coming into uh, Cisco with experience at several companies already, first of all, what's it like when you work for a company that is acquired by another company? Is it, a little, I would imagine it's a little unsettling. Can you walk us through that experience? Oh yeah. So, so there's probably, a, I guess I need to tell you the whole story. So the first acquisition was in 1994. It was Cisco's second acquisition, a company called Newport Systems. Uh, we came in and we basically sold a router. Um, it was a router that fit inside a server. So, you know, a little bit scaled back. Um, again, Cisco's second acquisition. They made us a separate business unit. Uh, so basically, I have Cisco on my business card and I'm competing with Cisco. <laughs> trying to sell routers to the same customers they're trying to sell routers to, just a different kind of flavor of it. It did not work out. Um, you know, that lasted about eight months, nine months. Uh, I went from being, you know, 110% of plan to being like 85% of plan. Um, and I'm like, hmm, this isn't working. And my previous vice president of sales at one of my previous companies called and said, hey, there's this new startup. It's great. It's called Combinet. So I went to Combinet. 
That was Cisco's fourth acquisition a year later. <laughs> so I was acquired <laughs> twice. Um, and I think what Cisco learned was, you know, you can't, you can't keep a company completely separate like that, especially if the product set is very, very similar. And so we were immediately integrated at that point. And, you know, that was, that was a better way of doing it, at least in that, in between those two situations. Um, and so being integrated immediately, I was given a sales job in Atlanta. Um, so I started as an AM and that was, that was, uh, a little scary at first because back then, you know, the new people always got, you know, completely competitive territories, right? You didn't, I had one account that had bought anything, um, and wow. the rest were all competitive. So, you know, I didn't have run rate and the first six months I was literally, um, not selling anything. Uh, and then all of a sudden I broke into Delta airlines, which was a big account, uh, big competitive account. I, uh, had a small company that merged with another company to become Nextel Communications, which was, you know, I think acquired by Sprint. Um, and so all of a sudden I go from, you know, in a year being the new guy with no business to being the top sales guy. Uh, and a couple of years later, they promoted me. Um, that's a funny story. I was, uh, I'll tell this story. I was the top AM, you know, my boss, my director had come to me we have a regional manager and then the next level is the director came to me and said, uh, you interested in management? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to do that. Yep. Yep. Well, it was Christmas. I was already almost at plan that next year. And he goes, you still interested in being uh, a manager? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, okay. I want you to have dinner with um, the VP. He's coming in town after the Christmas break on like January 3rd. Um, Get on his calendar because we're doing region reviews the next day and he's coming in to, to do the reviews. I said, oh, okay, good opportunity to meet the VP. So I call, get on his calendar. His assistant says, yeah, well, he wants you to pick him up at the airport and have dinner with him the night before. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's probably, he's busy. That's probably his only time. So we have a wonderful conversation over dinner. And um, uh, he asked me if I'm coming, didn't talk business at all asked me if I'm coming to the region reviews in the morning. And I said, no, I'm an AM. These are, you're reviewing the regional managers. He goes, I'll just pop in. You just kind of see what it's like. I'm like, oh, okay. So I pop in, uh, first thing the next morning, uh, all the regional managers are walking in. Um, my boss walks in the director, he kicks off the meeting and says, I'd like to introduce a new regional manager for the Georgia commercial region, Larry Payne. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what? Um, I, I think they were afraid I'd say no because I was, you know, compensated so well when you're at 100 percent of plan halfway through the year. So they didn't mm. they, they never offered me the job. They just announced me. Um, <laughs> so I got, I, you know, after coming out of that meeting that day, I called my wife and said, honey, I got good news. I think I got I just got promoted. But the bad news is I think I took a huge pay cut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, uh, that was a fun experience. Is, is that kind of move even possible in, in, uh, 2018, 2020 timeframe? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Not it was like a wild, wild west back then. It really was. It was a wild, wild west. Yep. Yeah. So that was my first, um, uh, entrance into to leadership. That's awesome. Tell me about what that was like going from top performing individual contributor into management and, and how your role really changed. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's a very dramatic 
uh, role, Sean, that people maybe underestimate. And, uh, you know, for those who don't know me, uh, my last role at Cisco, I was a senior vice president. So I had, um, you know, a large organization, um, you know, a large percent of the company's business. And I got to talk and coach a lot of first-line managers and new first-line managers. And it is a big transition. I think as a, as a salesperson, you know, you really enjoy the recognition, right? You're very competitive. You want to be at the top of the stack ranking. You want to get the award. Uh, you want to be the one that uh, is out in front leading the sales charge. And as a manager, you really need to take a step back and let your people be, you know, have that spotlight. Uh, and I see a lot of managers, especially those who are top salespeople, uh, struggle with that, that nuance of leadership, right? Because, you know, you can be a great leader and a great manager, but if your people aren't successful, you're not a great leader, or a great manager. Uh, so your job is really to help them be successful and give them the credit and recognition when that happens. Um, and that's a that's one of those subtleties that I, I think people struggle with when they make that move. And I certainly did because, you know, I was that very competitive. I liked the, uh, I liked the recognition. I liked, uh, you know, leading the charge. And, you know, I, I, I used to say that new managers, sometimes they, uh, they, they try and be Superman, right? They put on a cape and put the S on their chest and they go close the deal for the, the AM. You need to be careful doing that. You really need to let your team drive the business. You'd be there to support. Yeah, there'll come a time when you have to do that. You got to know when you, when you do. But for the most part, you got to let them, you got to let them lead, let them do their thing. And like I said, a big part of it is they get all the credit when things go well. Uh, when things don't go well, that's when you sometimes have to step in and take the blame. Um, but you got to let them have the credit. So that's that was a big difference for me, Sean, is just stepping out of that that limelight, if you will, and taking a step back. Now there were a lot of tactical day-to-day -day things that were different. Um, you know, you don't control your schedule. That's another thing that was different. I can't tell you how many days I would call my wife at you know 4:30 and say I'm uh, I'll be home for dinner in an hour and a half. Should be perfect. Well, you know, at 4:45, the first sales rep would come in and give me the problem of the day. And then the second one would come in five minutes later. And next thing I knew, you know, it's seven o'clock and I'm still working problems that uh, the salespeople brought me when they came back from their day of being out on sales calls. And I'd have to call my wife and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I'm still here. Um, and so you don't control your own schedule either, which is again, part of that, that servant leadership, if you will, is kind of what I'm pointing at is, you know, when you become a leader, it's not about you, it's about your people. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because I really I'm excited to hear your your take on leadership and investing in people. I can say from my perspective as a you know an individual contributor, uh, kind of a nobody. You know, I joined the organization, and um, you've got many different leaders and and um, even people you dotted line report to, and so you get a chance at the end of each quarter to view a um all hands review you know where they're given recognition and you see some um some of the sales leaders are up there and in general everyone's amazing and great but you see some where it's kind of they're they're 
I don't know. It's just um, it's different. But I look. I remember joining yours. It's kind of like being on Mark Dodds's calls, where you guys, you. It's clear you love your people. You're like excited. You hand the ball. You're like, this is what they just did. They just won this business. They went in and and um, I just loved that. I was like, man, you can tell they're a good person, good leader because of the way that they have a a genuine love for their team. You know, they're. It's not a matter of like, okay, let's turn it over to Tony for, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, it, it was, I always loved that about it. And, um, and that was, I, I wasn't surprised when, when um, I ended up meeting you and we were talking, it was like, you're the same guy you were on, on camera at the all hands or, you know, in the big meeting as the SVP, you know, running billions of dollars of, of business because you could just tell it's a good guy, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I think part of that, I'll, I'll go back to my dad. I mean, that's one thing. He was the most, he still is the most genuine, authentic man I know. Um, you know, he doesn't have a politically correct bone in his body. <laughs> if it's right, it's right. And if it's wrong, it's wrong. And he doesn't care who he offends, which sometimes gets, is not good. Um, but but he, uh, he also is one of those guys who, you know, he doesn't hide anything. And uh, he doesn't even have a polite laugh. You know, when someone tells a joke and it's not funny and, and everybody just kind of gives a polite chuckle, he just sits there stoically, you know, stone faced. It's not funny. He doesn't wow. have a laugh. <laughs> but it's it's endearing to me, right? Because it, it builds trust and, and credibility. Um, but he uh, he was very authentic. And I think that's important in a leader, too, is to be authentic, right? You, you have to be the same person you are uh, at home. You, you can't change. Yeah, there's a you make tweaks, don't get me wrong, and you understand that you're in front of a lot of people, but you can't change who you are. Um, and so I think authenticity is important in a leader. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'd be curious, uh, you you started as account manager, went to you know a, a region manager, director, probably a senior director, VP, senior VP, um, and that's a... Um, I mean, that's like going from a second lieutenant to a, you know, two-star general, essentially. And um, and if it was in the military, um, that type of progression. Can you, for, for those who are curious, um, I think most people in general understand what an account manager does on a day-to-day -day basis. It's visiting with customers, you know, a lot of um, direct uh, communication there. What's it like sort of maybe halfway up the stack, maybe as a director, um, what do they tend to work on? What sort of projects? And then uh, at the top, as a senior vice president, what types of projects are you working on? What, uh, who do you tend to interface with on a daily basis? That kind of thing. So be curious to hear your thoughts there. Yeah. So I think as you, a couple of things that are consistent. As you move up in the organization, your uh, time frame for your strategy has to extend, right? So as a regional manager, you're trying to make the number that quarter, maybe that year. You know, as a director, you're certainly looking more than that. You're looking more like a two, three-year window. As an SVP, you're looking out longer term. Uh, yeah, you got to drive the strategy this year. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and your strategy will change. But you've got to have a longer horizon from a timeline perspective that you're thinking through things. Um, because, you know, when I had the public sector, when I was a senior VP, you know, there were, I don't remember, 12, 1,300 people in my organization, but another thousand or more that were tied to the, the business through a support mechanism, whether they were the virtual sales team, the marketing team, the partner team, you know, the services team. You can't move that ship in a month, 
you know, that ship, it takes a while to move. And so you've got to be thinking more long term. Um, you know, the, the level of interfaces continue to go up too, and the stakes get higher. You know, when I'm presenting, I'm presenting to, I, I hardly ever met anyone that wasn't at least at the C level as a senior VP. Um, and even as a director, you should be meeting with, you know, on medium sized accounts, the, the CIO. Um, and those meetings have you know, higher stakes. They can have a bigger impact. And so you have to think through those communications. So when I, when I look at my job, um, even as, as I moved up, it became really two big buckets. One of those buckets was communications. Um, and communications is not just speaking um, and disseminating information. It's taking information in. And so you're constantly communicating. And whether you're with your team or your customers or, you know, the company, I used to have to go to our company and ask for resources or investment. You're constantly communicating. You're communicating your strategy so people know what your expectations are. Uh, a big part of it is establishing your vision and then establishing the culture of the organization. And in our organization, uh, and again, coming from the public sector, a big part of it was giving back. A big part of it was serving our government and education customers who are serving citizens or protecting our citizens or defending our nation. So big part of our culture is what you're communicating. Uh, and you have to be intentional about that, right? You have to have a communication strategy. You have to have a message. You have to have the forms you're gonna use. You reference the uh, quarterly all hands. Uh, it's weekly meetings with the staff. It's all the above that go into that. The second big bucket is you have to make decisions. That's your job, you have to make decisions. And so gathering information to allow you to make decisions and then you communicate those decisions back out. Those are what I consider to be at the very basic functions, uh, what my job was, is to communicate and make decisions. Um, I know that's oversimplifying, but that is a big part of what I spent my time thinking about and doing. Um, and we can go and get into detail on both those in, in a lot of detail, but again, at the highest level, that's what it did. Interesting. Are there any um, stories, whether um, lesson stories where it's a lesson we could learn from, or uh, or just something that was particularly entertaining, or any anything that uh, from when, as you look back on your time in sales that you'd want to share with anyone? <laughs> you know, there's there's so many entertaining stories, but uh, I have to be careful here. Yeah, um, good point. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you one thing that um, uh, one of my mentors um, at the end of my career was John Chambers. And for those who don't know who John Chambers is, he was the longtime CEO and chairman of Cisco Systems. Um, he became the chairman when our current CEO, Chuck Robbins, was promoted and John became the chairman of the board uh, only uh, while Chuck was the CEO. Um, and John interviewed me when I did, uh, when I moved in to run our federal government business. Um, and, you know, I was nervous because I had spent time with him, but didn't really know him. Um, and in the interview, I knew, here, here's some advice. You know, you need to get your points across uh, and make sure you get your points across when you're in an interview. Uh, because, you know, that's your opportunity. And so I was thinking through what was I going to say in my opening? And, you know, my opening was something to the effect of, you know, John, I, um, uh, we've been on sales calls. You don't know me. But 
you know, I've been at the company 18 years and I've only missed my number two times. One was in 2001 when the dot-com bubble burst. The other was in 2008 when, you know, the, the next uh, economic downturn occurred. Uh, and so, you know, I am, uh, uh, I, I am very passionate about making sure that I perform. And he just sat back, he paused and he goes, me too. That's the only two times I've been here 20 years. And that's the only two times I've missed my number. Wow. <laughs> it was a fantastic conversation. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the lessons is, you know, if you're looking at your career, regardless of the role, certainly in sales, we keep score. So it's, it's easy to say you've hit your performance metric. But at the end of the day, if I look at my career, one of the most important things and most important advice I give people is you have to perform, right? I mean, it's all about delivering for the company, your boss. Now, once you do that, you've got to differentiate yourself. And the way you do that is how you treat people, how you work with people. Um, you know, are you one of those people that people want to work for or work with? Um, you know, are you respectful? And, you know, that then starts to differentiate you. We just call it collaborate, you know, a good collaborator. Um, and then are you helping people outside your current area of responsibility be successful? Because that shows that you're thinking bigger about the company. So those are those are some of the things that uh, that's a little bit of a funny story with a little bit of advice coming behind it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned uh, helping people outside of your organization and uh, fire. Is it at the SVP level where everyone um, gets an opportunity to sponsor a particular initiative? Um, did you have any particular um, good causes or initiatives within or without outside of Cisco that, that um, you took on in a leadership role and support? So they do encourage us to do that. So for me, a couple of things, and, and Sean, I'll compliment you for the audience. Um, you know, we, we sponsored some of the uh, Clemson uh, athletes for a internship. And, you know, Sean came to me and said, would you sponsor this? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to, you know, have us, you know, spend a bunch of time with college athletes. That's, that's not really what we need to be doing with our funds and time. But then Sean did a good job and showed me what the benefit to the business was. It was bringing on, you know, some very talented, diverse, um, um, diverse talent. And, uh, you know, it was a great program. The, the, so that was one that was certainly outside my area of responsibility, but you do it. Uh, I was on the board of the USO. Um, you know, I served on uh, boards of, of other industry associations. Um, you know, we've done things with lots of different charitable causes and events. Um, you know, we sponsor every year the uh, LLS, uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, someone from public sector is uh, what's what's called man or woman of the year, where they go and raise money for that. And we've won that for, I want to say, four years in a row wow. um, with our person. I could go, I, I mean, the list could go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we were big on giving back. We took that seriously. There were thousands of initiatives. You know, I spent the night out at the Covenant House here in Atlanta with uh, with Mark Dodds and, and, you know, the team even after retiring. So, you know, that that still is part of, of uh, the passion that I have and, and a lot of our leaders have. Yeah, it was interesting for me coming to Cisco from a small business where I was over marketing and in marketing, it's like, okay, we want to do good, 
but we also want to be seen doing good too. You know, that's sort of the, it's in the, always in the back of your mind. Right. But yeah. I feel like coming to Cisco is interesting. Like we do so many good things that where, where no one would have a clue and even see into it. You know what I mean? We're just doing good, like all the time, all over the place. And everyone's they, the company very generous and they, and the employees are very generous. I saw on multiple occasions where there was a, a GoFundMe for people in the on the team, or the cafeteria worker uh, had cancer, or or someone you know something going on where just thousands of dollars pouring in, and at the you know at the um, corporate level you have millions of dollars going in, whether it's supporting homeless people or um, supporting you know many other causes. Um, again, I don't want to start listing some because I'll miss some, but there's. Anyway, it's just, what is it about Cisco that that uh, is so charitable or and um, focused on making the world a better place? Yeah, you know, I think it starts with leadership, right? Certainly, uh, John started it years ago. Chuck has continued it, um, and so you've got a lot of support from leadership, um, and I think that's important for companies. Now, let, let's talk for a minute about why Cisco does that. Obviously, it's the right thing to do. Uh, you know, we uh, uh, we had leaders who, who knew it was the right thing to do. But there's also business benefit. And, and I think for any initiative to really live as long and be as successful, there's got to be a win-win-win, right? So the win is that we're doing good. The other win is that people like you, Sean, who have passion around that, it's a great, it's a great environment to work in. And so we're able to attract the type of people we want and the talent that we need as a company because they know that they can they can um, pursue their passion to give back and help outside of work. Um, and then it also helps with uh, with customers, right? I mean, our customers see that we're not just trying to sell them something and take their money. We're in the communities. We're trying to, to do the right thing. Um, and, and by no means am I saying that we're doing it for business purposes, but what I'm saying is that yeah, yeah. the reason it's proliferated, the reason it's lasted so long is because it creates this win-win-win for, you know, society, for our company and employees, uh, and for our customers and, and uh, everyone in general. Yeah, you can't put a value on just making you feel good you know you feel good whenever you help and and serve someone or or even just donating you just you, you feel better about it and then you know that's helping someone else so um yeah. that's and, good and I, think, I think it comes back to what you're you're doing here is you know i remember my dad we were we were up early one morning because there was a flood and we we're throwing sandbags i'm probably eight years old throwing sandbags to stop the flood to help people uh, and and you know he always had people he was helping. Um, and I tried to instill that in my kids too, because I think that's important. You know, you have to, you have to realize that this world is tough at times and people need help and you need to, you need help when you can. Um, and I'm proud to say all my kids have taken that lesson and, and taken it to heart. So it, uh, uh, you know, it's bigger than just work. Yeah, for sure. And you, I, you know, I had the pleasure of of meeting your wife and sitting down talking with her for probably uh, close to an hour or more. Um, and you have a phenomenal wife um, and uh, great kids too, from everything I've heard. Um, how did you manage successfully, you know, maintaining and developing a, a marriage and and raising a family while also uh, holding tremendous responsibilities in your career? 
Yeah. Um, that doesn't always work out well. Um, and, and you're someone who I look up to as a role model to say, Hey, someone who worked a ton, you know, worked their butt off their whole career while, but also somehow made into the right investments into those accounts with each kid to, to help them develop. So tell what's the secret sauce. Cause that rarely, it, it seems like it rarely works out, but you, you nailed it. Well, I, I think you met the secret sauce. That was my wife. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, you know, it's funny, Sean. I've been coaching a lot of, since retiring, you know, I've had a lot of young people coming my way just for, for coaching. And it's because, you know, they're friends of my kids. They're kids of my friends. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I always tell them that the most important decision you're going to make is uh, is who you marry. Uh you know, so it does take that. And, and I got to give my wife, Lori, a lot of credit for everything. She's just she is selfless, which means, you know, every everybody's put above her um, in her own mind. So, uh, yeah, that was a big one. But I think, too, it's it, I worked really hard and traveled a lot and was gone a lot. So when you're here, you you know, you do have to be engaged. You have to do what you can. You have to. I felt like I had to fight for those opportunities to be with my kids and to spend time with them. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I was, uh, my son Aaron was 14. And so, you know, he played baseball. This was his last year of playing baseball before moving into, you know, that, that middle school, high school, those programs where, you know, I wasn't going to be able to, uh, to spend time with him on the field. But I was a vice president and traveling every week. So I went to my boss and I said, you know, I, I, I'm struggling with this. I'm not sure I can do it, but I would like to coach him. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to have to figure it out. And he was very supportive. Uh, he said, look, you know, we'll figure it out. Uh, you need a good assistant coach who can be there all the time. Um, and then, you know, other than that, we'll figure it out. And that was the best decision I made that year probably was to go ahead and coach him. We had so much fun and we got to spend so much time together, but you do have to fight for it. And that's what I would recommend is fight for that time with your, your kids and family and, you know, be creative. Uh, you still, you know, I still had to deliver the number. I still had, you know, all my responsibilities, but um, if you can fight for it, you'll figure it out. I like I really like that because it's not necessarily easy to to incorporate, you know, to carve out family time. You have to deliver. But when, you know, 30 years later, when you look back on your life, you're not going to care about whatever big projects you had at work going on at that time. But you'll totally remember that year of coaching your son. Exactly. You're exactly right. And, you know, I have no idea what my percent attainment was that year. <laughs> but I do know that, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun. Uh, and, and good time together that year. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, tell me about some of, were you able to pursue any hobbies while going up a career that was very busy? And, and then certainly any, what have you, what hobbies have you been working on during retirement? Yeah, so it, I, I can't, you know, my hobbies were the kids and the family, right? That was where, when I had free time, that's probably what I was doing. Um, one of the things I've always tried to do is is exercise and stay in shape. Um, and and I didn't do a really good job the last few years um, of my career. But, you know, immediately following after I retired, that was one of my priorities. Uh, and, and I'll tell you this. It's important to take care of yourself, right? You can't take care of other people. If you don't take care of yourself. 
Uh, I'm a big reader. I read a lot of leadership books. Um, I read a lot of biographies of leaders. Um, and one of them, you know, you always you always hear what are the characteristics of a good leader, right? And and you always see vision and charisma and strat strategic. You know, you kind of see the same things. Uh, I read General Patton, um, his characteristics of a good leader, and they were they were you know tactically aggressive, which means you know ability to execute or what we used to call execute. Uh, strategic as you would think, strong character as you would think. But his last two were interesting. Um, high energy and good health as a leader. Uh, and we're all leaders, whether it's, you know, in, the, in business or at home or in our community, it does take energy, right? You have to be energetic. You have to be able to pour your energy out all the time. You have to move a lot. You have to cover a lot of territory. Um, and it takes good health to do that. So, you know, one of my hobbies has been trying to just stay healthy. Um, mm -hmm. I enjoy playing golf now. That's been a hobby that I uh, have wanted to pursue, pursue, but never had time. So now I'm starting to play a little more golf. Um, but yeah, I'd say those are those are the ones that I've uh, continued to with through the years. That's awesome. And what does um, staying healthy, getting healthy look like? Do you have any particular habits or routines that you'd encourage people to think about? Um, yeah, so here's, here's one thing. I mean, and, you know, people enjoy exercising first thing in the morning or at night. That's really a preference. Um, you know, I never was, you know, drank too much or, you know, very rarely. And that was by accident. Um, I, uh, uh, I, I'm not a real picky, I'm not a real healthy eater. Um, you know, I tell people I eat like a five-year-old kind of a plain cheeseburger, chicken nugget guy. Um, but I did exercise and I always did it in the morning. And one of the keys, and this is something I would recommend, um, I kept on a sleep schedule, right? I mean, I, I religiously, whether the kids are home and wanting to stay up or, you know, it's a business uh, event and people want me to stay out, I really used to make it a point to try and make sure I was in bed by 11, lights out, you know, around 1130. And you know, up around that 6:30 to 7:30, depending on schedule, uh, just so that you keep your body on a schedule. So, I'd say that was one of the more important things when it came to me staying healthy and staying energized. Hmm. Good to know. And I will say, I I've only known you uh, the last few years of your career when apparently you weren't in good health. You certainly looked like it. Uh, <laughs> you you were I was tall and lean, and so you must have had a uh, a raging six pack all the other years. Uh, so <laughs> that's something to aspire to for me. No, I'm just blessed I am tall. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six to twelve months? Hmm. All right, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Um, it was a little more than $100, but it was reasonable. My Apple Watch, and I'll tell you why, a couple reasons. It's so convenient, you know. Um, you know, if I'm out on the golf course doing something and I don't have my phone, someone texts me, I can look down and see what it is and see if I have to respond, right? Uh, it's got this crazy thing called activity where you can count, you know, it counts your steps, it counts how much exercise, uh, counts how many calories you burn. So, you get to see that it's just been a real convenience for me. Um, and I actually liked it so much. I bought it for my mom, my dad, uh, and, and my daughter who is, uh, uh, just had a baby and, you know, is, is working her way uh, back into shape. So 
that's been a fun one. That's been a good one. Cool. How has a failure or significant obstacle in your path set you up for later success? Or in other words, you could say, do you have a favorite failure of yours? Um, gosh, probably a million failures here. Um, you know, I, I think as a, as a, as that new manager, we'll go back to that. You know, I inherited a team that was not performing well. Um, and I had to make changes, which, you know, happens quite often when you take on a new role, especially in leadership, you know, either the, either the team was not performing or, you know, the, the manager who had them before the leader who had them before got promoted, which is also brings its own challenges. Um, and I was, you know, working through a separation of one of the salespeople and, you know, he was struggling, he was getting emotional and I ended up getting emotional too. And, you know, basically almost opened the company up to liability because I basically told him if he didn't hurt him to sign this document, I was going to fire him and he wasn't going to get any separation and no, no severance or anything. Completely the wrong thing to do, right? Completely. I mean, I opened the uh, wrong way to treat people, um, completely opened the company up to, to legal um, ramification. And that learning was, you know, when people are going through emotional times, you really have to step back and not be emotional. And you have to, you know, that's when you have to put yourself in their position. You know, you have to coach them through. And what I learned is if I can get people, whether they're successful or not, uh, to see that they are not in the right role, if they see that, then they make their own decisions. And that was always my goal is to help people understand, are you in the right role? Is this really a good fit for you? If you're not happy, if you're not successful, what's the reason for it? It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're lazy. It's not because you you know aren't smart. It's because your skill set is probably not well suited for this and could be better suited for something else. Hmm. And so like that, that really helped me understand that. That's a great story. Um, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? Could be investment of money, time, energy, anything. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I still go back to that investing in uh, that year of coaching my son. So that's one that, that I'll, I'll never forget. I, and there's been multiple of those where, you know, I will, um, you know, I'll take the red eye back one, one other time. My, uh, my daughter, I had committed to run a, a, a 5K or 10K with her, and I'm not a big runner. Um, and unfortunately, I had to go to Phoenix, and there was no way, you know, it's hard coming back from the West Coast to the East Coast. I live on the East Coast. Um, I took the red eye back Friday night, and uh, ran the race with her. Ooh. And that is, again... You know, you got to fight for it, but that's an investment. Now, I paid for it later that day. <laughs> I'd imagine. But those type things, I think, are, um, you know, those are the type of investments. From a financial perspective, you know, I can tell you a lot of bad investments. Um, I think, too, uh, I, I learned early in my uh, my adult life that when you when you have resource, you have money, you know, you can do three things with money. You can save it, you can spend it, or you can give it. And 
you know, I can assure you, I have spent money and regretted it. Um, you know, it, we all do, right? Buyer's remorse, you know, buy that new car and two weeks later, you're like, oh, wish I hadn't done that. Uh, you can save your money and invest it. And, you know, we've all made those investments where they didn't pay off, right? We, uh, I won't tell you how many I've done, but we've certainly done them. And then you can give it. And I'll tell you, Sean, I can't think of a time I have given money to a, a worthy cause that I regret it. And so, you know, those are also investments that I think are very positive when you, when you give. That's awesome. So if we transition to the topic of family about again, which has been interwoven throughout your story, but um, tell us just high level overview, a little about your family. And then maybe one thing you feel like um, if there's anything I've nailed as a parent, it's this one, you know, and, and that's coming from someone who's done a great job as a parent, but um, you know, nobody's perfect. What would you say is one thing you really nailed as a parent? So this will, this will, you, you, you know, you probably have spent enough time with me, Sean, to know that uh, I like to have fun and, you know, I like to laugh and, you know, I have three children, um, you know, they're two daughters, um, you know, they're, they're out of college, grown, living, married, happily married, living their lives. Uh, you know, we have one grandchild, um, we have another one on the way, so that's really fun. And then my son just graduated from Clemson, uh, go Tigers. Um, so that's the family unit here. Um, and I'll tell you the thing that I think I've nailed is, you know, they know how to laugh, right? And that's important. Life's hard. You got to be able to laugh. You got to joke around. And when we get together, it is constant comedy. Um, and don't take yourselves or anything too seriously. So I think I think that's one thing that I'm I'm really glad that I was doing uh, as they grew up was joking around a lot. And my wife and I joke around a lot. Uh, you know, life life can be difficult. So it's good to have some fun. It's good to laugh. Um, you know, you were probably expecting me to say something you know really deep, but I think that's really important. And that's something I've nailed. Now I've made a lot of mistakes as a parent, just like we all have, but uh, uh, I sure, think that's sure. something I've nailed. No, I would, I would, I think laughter, at least in my experience, has been um, probably more valuable than any kind of deep answer we might give because sometimes you just have to laugh to stay, stay sane to, uh, you know, lubricate the relationships and, and uh, that's good. So laughter, very, very important. Mm-hmm. Any advice for someone who, and maybe um, just asking for a friend, has a lot of young kids and yeah. and is thinking, what's a good family vacation that is fun for the kids and isn't terrible for uh, the, the the parents? <laughs> oh, there's there's a lot of those. So I don't know about you, but we uh, uh, we live in Atlanta, um, and our kids love Disney. Um, and then my oldest daughter went to college at University of Central Florida in Orlando. John, if I ever go back to Disney, I'm going to shoot myself. I have had so much <laughs> of Disney that uh, I, I'm not sure I can do it again. Um, but uh, they love it. So that was always fun. Uh, you know, we always enjoyed getting away to the beach, um, you know, whether it was Hilton Head. And we owned a place, another speaking of bad investments, we owned a place um, on the uh, uh, Florida coast. Uh, and we used to go down there every year with the kids and, you know, it, it creates, it creates those, uh, those memories that are, you know, almost became traditions, you know, every year when we would go to our place for the week of, of our vacation together, the family, you know, we would, we would cook the same things and it was like, you know, 
basic spaghetti and tacos and, uh, you know, just basic yeah. stuff. And the kids remember all that, you know, you just create that, that repeatable, um, uh, memory that they, they still talk about. So I, I'm not sure places are what's important. I think it's more creating the memories that, uh, uh that are going to stick with them. I like that. Is there any parenting advice that you disagree with? You know, I think there actually is, Sean, and and now you're going to think I'm a horrible person. But um, and it's also career advice, because, again, I've been coaching some of the younger people here recently who are just getting out of college. And and I probably need to explain it. So don't don't throw me under the bus till you give me a chance here. But, you know, the whole idea of um, follow your passion, do what you love. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I think that's real. I think that's good up to a point, but there's also got to be a dose of reality to that. Yeah. And what do I mean by that? I love my job. I love my career. Uh, wouldn't trade it for the world. There were days when I had to work. <laughs> there were days I didn't love. <laughs> and I just think that we need to be more real with our younger people that, yes, you can follow your passion. But that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, every day is going to be rosy. Um, and I, I've, I've talked to some folks. I'll tell you a story. I was talking to a young man. Uh, he had switched his degree from engineering to psychology. And his parents weren't real happy about it. And they wanted me to talk to him. So I talked to him. And I said, what, uh, what, what, what's going on? And, you know, he just wanted to follow his passion. He wanted to be happy. He wanted to um, he wanted to help others, which is very noble. And I think that's great. He wanted to coach other people, young people. So that's great. Um, and then I asked him the question. I said, so where do you want to be? You're 22 years old. Where do you want to be when you're 30? And, and I don't you don't have to be specific, but general. What's your life look like? Do you own a home? Are you married? Do you have kids? What's your income level look like? Do you want to be at work? Do you want to be leading people or still an individual contributor? Do you still want to be helping young people? What's it look like? And he came back, you know, the next week and he kind of had his head hung down and he said, you know, I, uh, I really had to think about it. I didn't want to admit it, but, you know, I do want to own a nice home and I do want to be married. And I do want to have kids. And, and he, he used a great term. He said, I want to be able to provide abundantly for my family when I'm 30 years old or in my 30s. I said, well, what's that mean? He said, well, I just, you know, if we want to go to Disney or on a family vacation, I don't want to be stressed about it. I don't want us to have to cut back in other places. I just want us to be able to have a normal life without, you know, being stressed over finances. And I also want to be able to, he's first generation um uh, born in the U.S., his family's from Africa, uh, and, you know, he still has family in Africa, and he wants to be able to help them as well. I said, well, how does that play with the decision you just made to move to psychology? And that was his response. It was like, yes, you know, I'm going to, you know, the, the income for, you know, count counselors or, um, you know, psychologists, unless you go on to get a master's and a Ph.D., you know, the income level is not going to meet that need of the 30 years. And I find a lot of people who change careers, you know, they have that regret that they probably could have avoided if someone would have just said, look, think about what you want your life to be like 
eight, 10 years from now? And what you're doing, does it really fit that? And again, Sean, there are some people it does. I mean, I've got a friend whose brother is is our, our age, and he got the passion to surf when he was, you know, <laughs> in his teens, and he has lived to surf and still does it at 50-some-odd years old. Um, yeah. He just works to surf and loves it. He's happy. But make sure you think through that. And that, you know, a very long-winded answer but I do think that when we tell people to, you know, you'll never work a day in your life if you do what you love, uh, follow your passion, I, I think there has to be a dose of reality that goes along with that is all I'm saying. So so am I a horrible person? Not at all. I, I think that's uh, something we need to, everybody should grab a loudspeaker and share that with the world because uh, yeah. I, I hear that too. And I'm like, that's so unrealistic and unfounded. I feel like the person that said, you know, to follow your passion, you never work a day in your life is um, one of the lucky ones who was that surfer that, that went for it. And he was the <laughs> one in a thousand or one in 10,000 who actually was able to make a career out of it. Uh, and or they have a terrible memory and they're <laughs> looking back at their career. But there's yeah. something to be said about going into a field, whatever it is, whether it's technical, non-technical, but you can um, develop, progress, differentiate yourself, make a good living, and then have the time and the money to go pursue your hobbies. You know, uh, your what your work is doesn't have to be a hobby. You need to be interested in your work. But I find that whatever the field is, you can become interested in it, in it or certain aspects of it or some of the workflows that you have, you know, it doesn't need to be like, like go make money and, and take care of your family and then give to those causes you want. You know, that's my thought. So I'm, I think I'm with you. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you kind of bring up the second part of that is, I don't know about you. Like I said, I love my career, but when I was in college, I was not thinking I was going to be a technology, you know, in technology sales. Oh, by the way, it didn't even exist. Um, and so I think it's really hard to know what you want to do specifically, but you need to understand what you think you want your life to look like, what's going to make you really happy. And I think, I think most of us are built the way that we want to be accomplished, right? We want to be successful. We want to do things. Um, and so you also have the opportunity to make the most out of your current role. And that's what I'm trying to say. You know, the, the old song, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. It's all about attitude, right? Yeah. It is about attitude. And, and you know, most most people are in a good job if you're, you know, if you've done well. Um, and it's about your attitude to make the most of it. And that's what I encourage people to think through, right? If you're miserable, yeah, go find something else. But if you think you're not following your passion, Find a way for this to become your passion. I became very passionate about working with public sector companies and customers. Uh, I became very passionate about technology. So, uh, you know, I've enjoyed all of them. Yeah. And you don't know what you're interested in when you're 20, 22, even at 30. I mean, you can you can develop so many interests over time. So I, yeah. it's we make the... Uh, dis decisions with huge ramifications on our future when we're not thinking through half of the things we should be, you know? It, it, you're right. You're right. I mean, it's, uh, um, I, I think people should think at those ages more holistically about what they want their future to look like um, yeah. and think holistically about it. Yep. Great, great career advice and parenting advice in that one. Um, what, in what ways would you say you're a better father than three to five years ago? 
uh, or stated otherwise, what are, what are you learning lately as a dad? <sighs> you know, I'm, I'm just at that point where most of the hard child rearing was, you know, where you are when the kids were younger. Now that they're older, what I'm really realizing is that, you know, our kids are really resilient, right? Like I said, I've made every mistake in the book. I was, I, some days I felt I was too hard on them. Some days I felt I was too easy on them. You just second guess yourself as a parent all day, every day. And what's funny is my parents still do it and they're in their eighties. Uh, <laughs> I just would encourage people to understand your kids are resilient. And if you're trying, if you're genuinely trying, you genuinely love them. You're genuinely trying to be a good parent. They're probably going to be okay. <laughs> they're probably going to be okay. Don't be so hard on yourself. And so that's kind of what over the last three to five years of I've seen my kids enter into adulthood, start to start their families. You know, I'm starting to realize, Hmm, I must have done something right because they're really doing well. Um, and maybe that's good. Uh, you know, maybe that's some good news for younger parents. The fact that you're probably always second guessing yourself. You're probably wondering and, and nothing wrong with that. But realize your kids are resilient and they're they're in a good place. You know, if you can teach them right from wrong, you can protect them and provide for them. Love them. They're probably going to be OK. That's good news to hear for sure. <laughs> good. When when you've had bad days as a father, you feel overwhelmed or unfocused. Um, what do you do? How do you pull out of that? Yeah. Um, so I, I I I think you have to, you know, focus back on mind, body, spirit, right? Uh, you know, and my wife was always a great great reminder to me when she could tell that I was not in the right place, right frame of mind. And, you know, so for the mind, it was, you know, I needed to read something that would help me. Uh, for the body, it was exercise. And for the spirit, it was to, to you know, I, we're very active in our church. So it was attend church or attend a meeting. Um, and so I just think you need to, you do need to invest in yourself at times because you're pouring out for work, for family, for kids, for, you know, everything else you're doing. You do have to invest in yourself. Um, and get plenty of sleep. That's another thing. You know, if you're if you're not getting enough rest, if you're not taking care of yourself physically, mentally, uh, spiritually, that's when you start to break down and, and when you're not yourself. So I guess my my advice would be make sure that you're taking care of yourself in those three areas. Good. Thank you. And my um, wife is really good. She would see me and she'd be like, you know, I, I'd come in and I'd have, you know, this frown on my face and, you know, grit in my teeth. And she'd say, hmm, do you need to go to the gym, honey? <laughs> do you need to go work out, honey? <laughs> do you need to uh, go take a nap? <laughs> she could tell. That's, that's priceless. And I know I'm, I can, as a, as a father and, and um, spouse, I can imagine uh, you're not tooting your own horn, but I'm sure that other days when you come home and you can tell that she's been, you know, overworked and invested so much in the kids that she needs a little break and you can go in and, and help out too. So that's, I've found that to be um, one of the few things that Susan and I do well is we can tell when, okay, you know what? The other one is, is overworked. Let's, let me come in and help out for a minute and, and trade off a little bit. That's, that tends to be very helpful. Yep. Yep. It, uh, it is. I mean, you are a team. What, what's the old saying? Marriage is a 60, 40 partnership. Both sides get in 60%. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to uh, 
you do have to work together. And, and that's the other thing I think, you know, they always said that, you know, as a, as the husband and father, your kids should always know that you love their mother. Um, and I think that's one thing I, I did that well too, because I was, uh, you know, uh, I don't think they doubt that at all. Um, and so showing it by serving them and taking the kids or, you know, doing the dishes or whatever needed to be done, I think is, uh, uh, important as well. That's awesome. What is something you're looking forward to in the next 12 months? The birth of our second grandbaby. Awesome. Our oldest daughter and her husband are expecting in September. So that's going to be awesome. Uh, we already have, uh, you know, our, our other daughter and her husband have a six month old. So, you know, that's going to be a lot of fun. And he's starting to walk now. And, you know, it's 16 months, uh, you know, pretty soon, you know, he'll be swinging a golf club with me. And so <laughs> these are the things, Sean, I'm looking forward to. <laughs> that's, uh, You're getting ready to spoil him. He's, uh, he's 16 him. months old. Did. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I told him I, I won't discipline those kids at all. They can do whatever they want. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it helps that I'm, you know, emotionally and intellect, intellectually about on the same level as my 15 month old grandson too. Yeah. We get along great. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, in the age of coronavirus, um, any good, podcasts or shows you know typically people are streaming a little more content than usual these days any good shows or podcasts you've seen that you want to recommend you know i i don't know if i'd recommend it but the one that was interesting to me have you seen the new zach efron where he goes and looks at the uh environmentally friendly uh food and and uh, uh habits of people around the world um no. it's pretty interesting uh I saw a couple of those that my daughter recommended and I thought it was pretty interesting. You know, they go to places where they, uh, you know, have autonomous, uh, living and they grow their own food and make their own food. They went to, um, uh, one of the islands off of uh, one of the Mediterranean islands where they have a high percentage of people who live over a hundred years old. Uh, and they looked at their lifestyle and what they eat. Um, and that was pretty interesting. So anyway, that was one. But I'm not big on TV. I don't watch a lot of TV. If I watch TV, it's probably, you know, sports or news is probably all I really watch. And I've gotten where I don't even watch news anymore. We don't even turn that on. So I'm not watching a lot of TV, believe it or not. Good. That's that's probably a key ingredient of the good life, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Now you've been involved in um, volunteering and and uh, being an ambassador for a ton of good causes. So this is a challenging question for you, but the the question is, what's a good cause you wish more people knew about? Um, you, I know you've you've it may be hard to pick one out of out of so many, but um, what's your thoughts there? Oh my gosh, you're right. There's way too many for me to choose from. Um, you know, I'm on the board of a nonprofit now that provides, uh, you know, women's health um, uh, to those in need. Um, a good friend of mine is on the board of a agency that um, uh, uh, provides services to sexually abused women. You know, the Covenant House um, that 
helps uh, people in that that in between the foster care and adulthood, 18 to 22. Um, that's a great one. Uh, I hosted a uh, fundraiser for uh, Trinity, which is a um, um, a charity here in Atlanta that provides support to men, primarily homeless. And it's shocking to me how many are, are uh, veterans, which is another, you know, uh, passion of mine. So, you know, Sean, just in, you know, sorry, I'm just thinking out loud and I read all four or five. So there, there's so many, so many. And I, I really encourage people to, to take advantage of that. Like I said, I, I've never regretted donating to those, whether it's money or time. So, uh, a lot of them that I'm, I'm personally involved in and passionate about. Um, and I think people need to find their passion, right? If, if something, if someone said that if, uh, uh, if you listen to a story and it makes you really mad, that's probably one of those areas that you should explore as your, your charity, your charitable passion. Hmm. That's a good way to find it. Yeah. Larry, thank you so much for coming on. I've had a blast listening, and and I I truly look up to you as a, a role model, as a friend, um, someone who has had an amazing career, has uh, invested in having an amazing family. You, know, you made a the most important choice, finding a wonderful wife, and and have built a, a beautiful family, and and then having the time and resources to um, invest. And you've you've been invested in other causes along the way, but also now being retired, I think it's just cool that you're already involved in in so many good causes. So thank you for being a good person, a good citizen, and a role model of mine. Appreciate it. Um, is there anything else we should have talked about that we haven't covered, or anything you want to say before we wrap up? You know, Sean, I don't think so. We covered so much ground and I can't believe that we've been on for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes here. It went by fast. So uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you for investing and, and you know, hopefully helping others become, you know, good fathers, better fathers uh, while balancing career. It is a it is quite the balance, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm just glad that I could be part of it. So thank you. Hey, thanks, man. Uh, talk soon. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and subscribe because I've got much more where that came from. The next few episodes will include someone who's a doctor, division chief, professor, and bishop. We'll also have a guest who's a world record holding CrossFit athlete. And then we'll have the founder of a group called Dope Black Dads. All right, see you next time.